We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15. And I wish I could tell you that I planned this perfectly like that, but that's really not the case. Um, it just happens that we finished in time for 1 Corinthians 15 to come up the Wednesday before Easter Sunday. So that's pretty appropriate. And uh, I'll use uh, a number of verses out of 1 Corinthians 15 this coming Sunday, but we're going verse by verse through it on Wednesday. And I can assure you it's going to take me longer than just tonight. So uh, we're leading up to Easter with this, and then we'll keep on working through it afterwards. But uh, I suspect it'll take three or four weeks to get through. All right. So uh, as I like to do to keep us sort of in context, um, I like to read the entire chapter so that uh, we'll understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. Because remember, originally, the Bible, as we have it, was not separated into chapters and verses, right? You have different... In fact, even the, the book separations that we have were not entirely uh, the way they were. The New Testament is, but the Old Testament was, uh, was slightly different, okay? So uh, we're going to pray and then I'm going to read verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 15 from the English Standard Version. Father, I thank you for the privilege of teaching your word. I thank you for those that are here this evening and for those that are joining us online, either now or later. I pray that we will open our hearts and minds so that you can speak to us. Your word always accomplishes what you want it to accomplish, but it is incumbent upon each of us to pay attention and to allow you to speak. So I pray that's what we'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep, a metaphor for death. Then he appeared to James, this would be the half-brother of Jesus, then to the, all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who, uh, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So those who have died are just dead. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come 
has come also the resurrection of the dead. I love the ESV, but I don't always like, like the word order that they choose. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That is, God, the Father, has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put things in subjection under him. That is, God the Father is accepted. When all things are subjected to him, that is to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? So apparently this is a practice in Corinth. The Apostle Paul is not validating the practice. He's saying you're contradicting yourselves. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? Now he switches uh, gears. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Verse 35. But someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a weed or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have, been, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? O quotation from the prophets in the Old Testament. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen? Yes. All right. Whew. I'm out of breath. <laughs> That's one letter. That's a lot. Okay. So, for obvious reasons, this chapter in the Bible is called the resurrection chapter. And here we see another example of uh, God bringing good out of difficulty, trouble, and challenge. Because I named this study uh, that we're going through in First and Second Corinthians, God's dysfunctional people. The Corinthians were troubling and troubled. They had lots of problems. And so the Apostle Paul was constantly visiting them and constantly writing them. He wrote four letters to them. We have two, right? Um, so, uh, these two that are preserved are the ones that the Lord wants us to read and have. But look at all of this theology that comes out of these. We have the love chapter, which was two chapters ago, chapter 13. And now we have the resurrection chapter, right? So at the beginning, he reemphasizes the gospel. He says, I want to remind you, brothers. And remember, when he says brothers, lots of translations will say brothers and sisters because they're trying to help you to understand that he's not just saying only the men, all right? Uh, in fact, by saying brothers, and implicitly including women, he is elevating women, at least in their uh, time period. Whereas previously women were looked down upon and not paid attention to, they're included in everything that is going on. Uh, we've only now, in the last 20 or so years, come to a place where everybody is offended by everything and you, you can't use these gender terms any longer. Uh, so a lot of Bibles have had to go through and change their pronouns, right? So, you know, now you have people like, well, what is your preferred pronoun? Okay. Well, there you go. So what is the gospel? What exactly is the gospel? And do you believe the gospel? And you, are you holding firmly to that faith? So a lot of times the gospel is, uh, we have a positive sense of what that is, right? Good feelings about that. You've heard people say, that, that, that's the gospel. I raised my right hand. That's the gospel truth right? But what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is succinctly stated right here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, right? So before we get to that, um, the apostle Paul states very clearly that he preached the gospel to them and they received it and he believes that they're standing in that gospel, right? Then he says, um, you are being saved as the result of this. So um, many times you will hear someone say, you know, I'm saved or ask the question, are you saved? The reality is you come to a place in your life where you put faith in Jesus Christ and in this gospel that we're about to recite right here and you are saved, but you're also being saved. There's a process that's ongoing where you're becoming increasingly more like Christ. You're being prepared for heaven. You're, you are saved because you're looking forward to that reality because you put your faith in Christ, okay? You're being saved, 
and you will be saved. You will be saved from hell. You will be saved from the wrath of God. You will have a place in heaven because of this gospel. So you are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved, and all of that is the same thing. Amen? That doesn't mean that, um, so for a lot of people, they go to church, they come to a church that preaches the gospel. Uh, maybe they give an invitation or they get people to raise their hand or get people to pray a prayer. None of those things are wrong. And then the person leaves and says, good, I'm saved. And then they do nothing about it. Then maybe that's just an emotional experience, right? Um, you know, what happens when the pressure comes on? What happens when false teaching comes their way? So Jesus told the parable of the soils. Do you remember that? Sometimes it's called the parable of the sower, right? The sower just focuses on the person who is planting the seed, the farmer. It could be called the parable of the farmer if you want to know the truth. But the parable of the soils is more accurate to what is being stated. Jesus said a farmer went along and, and sowed seed, threw seed out there. Okay, back then they would just, they had a big bag of seed that hung over their shoulder. And after the ground had been plowed, they reach into that bag and walk along the furrows and throw the seed. It's called broadcasting, by the way, where we get our word broadcasting, right? You broadcast the message and throw that seed. And Jesus said, some of the seed fell on the road. Okay. Now it wouldn't have been paved, but it would have been packed hard because people were walking on it all the time. And he said, the birds of the air came and ate it and it never got into the ground to begin with. That's people that aren't paying attention, quite frankly, right? Jesus said the, uh, the devil comes and steals that word from them. The, the, the seed is the word of God, okay? And there are people that, that they, they won't hear the word of God. They don't hear the word of God because they refuse to pay attention. And there's all sorts of distractions. And they might even be, you know, distractions that are none, you know, they're not your fault, okay? I mean, you've got kids, you love them, but they're distractions, right? <laughs> and, you know, I can count on the, the fact your family can become the biggest distraction. And I'm not preaching against family, believe me, but they can become the biggest distraction. You know, it's like you're trying to focus and pay attention to the word. And, you know, I've had, you know, a family member call me in the middle of, you know, a sermon before. It's just like, it's almost like, you know, the devil is going, hey, no, you need to call him right now, right this minute. And they don't, they just do. So you've got to learn to manage those distractions, right? So that's the seed that falls on the, the road. Never gets planted. Nothing happens with it. That's the person, they come to church, they didn't receive anything, they walk out the back door. They don't even know what the preacher said, okay? Or they were paying too much attention to what the preacher was wearing or something the preacher said that was offensive or they just say, oh, I love that music. That was just beautiful. And then that's it, right? They don't listen to the, the message behind the music. They're not paying attention to the Holy Spirit, whatever. All right. Then Jesus said, and uh, the sower continued to sow, and there was some seed that fell on the rocky soil. So this is probably a, a part of the field that, you know, the farmer didn't really plan on putting any seed in because he knew that nothing's going to grow there, right? He started putting the plow in and it's right? And it's just, there's rocks all in there. So that's kind of off over to the side somewhere. But when he's just broadcasting the seed, some of it's going to fall there. Well, in that rocky soil... Uh, and this isn't just rocks on the surface. This is probably a lot like well, when I grew up in Arizona, uh, we had a type of soil called caliche. And it's just hard pack, right? And you have to really, really break that up. 
right, more than just a plow. I mean, you've got to really break that soil up or nothing will grow in it. It's, it's just super hard. But see, there's a crust of softer soil on the surface, right? So if he ran the plow over it, there might be, you know, broken, it broke up some of it, okay? So the seed falls over there, and he said, Jesus said in this parable, immediately it grew up. It started growing right away, maybe faster than the other soil. Well, what's going on there? Well, you know, the, the water got to it and the sun got to it and it was warm underneath it where that, that rocky soil was. And so the seeds responded right away and they grew up. But then as the day, you know, the days grow on and it gets hot, uh, the, you know, there's only a limited amount of water for those plants and they immediately wither and they die. And Jesus said, that's, that's somebody who they received the word with joy, but the cares of this life, right? And persecution arises and it withers them away. They don't last. And then he said, the, the sower sowed and some of it fell among the weeds. So this is an area of the field the, the farmer didn't even bother with. Okay, because he had to weed it and get rid of all of those other plants. So this is, again, it's over off to the side somewhere, but the soil fell there. And he said, and those plants grew up too, but the weeds grew up along with them and then choked them out. And he said, that's the people that, uh, that get distracted by the world. They, they have the desire for wealth and other things. And those distractions, unlike the distraction over here that just keeps them from paying attention, these are things that draw not just temporary attention, but draw them away from the word and draw them away from God, and it chokes them out. So it's interesting that Jesus used wealth as one of the primary distractions here, the desire for wealth and other things, because I, I've seen that happen. People become successful in certain areas of their life, and suddenly they're like, oh, oh, well, of course I'm a Christian. Yeah, of course, of course. But they're not really paying attention like they were before. They're not dedicated like they were before. God's just not really that important. What's important is their money. What's important is their cars and their houses and their bank accounts and all of these other things, right? And so, you know, Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is wealth. Then Jesus said, then there was seed that fell on the good ground and it grew up and produced fruit. Sometimes 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. That means that that fruit produced 30 times or 60 times or 100 times more seed than was sown, okay? That's the good soil. That's the good heart. That's the receptive person. Notice the difference. In two of these cases, the plant grew up, but then it died. This is people responding to the gospel, and it appears they have faith, but they don't last. More importantly, they don't bear fruit. That's the thing. If you want to know whether someone has faith, are they bearing fruit in their lives? Okay. Well, what is, you know, what is fruit? Well, um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit is sharing the gospel with other people and seeing those other people respond, that's fruit. Uh, we just looked at the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, and that is fruit of the Spirit, right? Operating through someone so that they will uh, be capable, uh, enabled, empowered to, uh, to edify the body of Christ. Is that happening, right? 
Well, there are so many distractions today, so many diversions, so many delusions that are leading people away. And right now, this sort of tendency toward uh, being woke, as they like to say, it's another gospel. It's not the gospel of Christ. Okay, And there's a whole other set of values surrounding this, and they sound good. Some of them sound right, but you find that you have to, uh, to leave the scriptural values behind, and you have to start listening to these other voices, many of whom don't believe it, that God even exists. Okay, um, And there are churches that are chasing political viewpoints, and alternative views concerning morality and sexuality and all of these things. And they've left the gospel behind a long time ago, right? The Apostle Paul says, you need to hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe in vain. I like that. you got to hold on to it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not grace. That doesn't mean that it's all about your strength. But it does mean you have to do something if you have faith right? Then you need to hold fast to that truth and don't let anything divert you and don't let anything push you to the side. So uh, this is not, you know, this huge body of doctrine that the Apostle Paul is talking about. This is the, the fundamental gospel, which is here, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he gives testimony about all the people he appeared to. Verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the gospel is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the burial is in there, and it is integral, it's central, it's very important, because the burial gives us proof that Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross, and that the tomb was, in fact, empty. There are all sorts of theories about what happened to Jesus. There is this um, this famous unbelieving, as in non-believing, Bible scholar. I know that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? A Bible scholar that doesn't believe the Bible. Believe it or not, there's quite a few of them. So when you hear a preacher say, well, scholars say, yeah, I want to know which scholars they're quoting, because there are plenty of scholars that have, you know, I don't, I don't know which of the, you know, the types of soil they were. Perhaps they're the, the soil with the weeds, and one of the other things that they're seeking is the approval of men, right? So they're like the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were more in, uh, interested in the approval of other Pharisees, other Sadducees, and other religious leaders than they were of genuinely pleasing God and pursuing God. And you have lots of professors of theology and philosophy and Bible teachers that are like that. They're more interested in this community of other teachers and other professors and what they think. And there has been a lot of doubt that has been sown since really the 1800s, even as far back as the 1700s. And so there are Bible scholars going all the way back, and they're very smart. And they know a lot about the facts of the Bible and where the Bible came from, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, but they don't believe. You see, you've you got to have faith, right? And it's interesting because 
Bart Ehrman is this, this uh, scholar that I'm referring to right now. Um, and he's, he's got a, a, a lot of awards and recognition and so forth for his scholarship. But he's written multiple books debunking the Bible and disparaging the Bible. And uh, he doesn't believe that Jesus rose. He thinks that he, he does believe historically Jesus died on the cross. There's more historical evidence for that than a whole lot of other uh, events and incidents and personalities that we believe existed in history. Okay, So he does believe that. He just doesn't believe in the resurrection. Now, you might say, well, doesn't everybody believe that? No, not everybody believes Jesus died on the cross. Did you know Muslims do not believe Jesus died on the cross? They don't right? Um, I, I'll dig into my notes here later, either this week or next week, and uh, give you actual quotes from the Quran, the holy book of the Muslims that says, no, Jesus didn't die on the cross. So there are people that don't believe Jesus died on the cross. So Bart Ehrman, at least to this credit, to his credit to this degree, um, says, no, Jesus died on the cross. But probably if he was like most men that die on the cross, they took his body off the cross and they threw it out and dogs ate it. Well, that's why this, what I just related to you, this is a confession of faith that dates between two and five years of the event that it describes. Now, there were plenty of people, there were plenty of Jewish leaders in and around Jerusalem in particular, and really all over the world, who did not want anybody to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But it's interesting, none of them held that Jesus was not crucified, none of them held that Jesus was not buried in a tomb. Why? Because Jesus was buried in the tomb of a very, very well-known, wealthy man, and it was an empty tomb. Okay, do you remember his name? His name was Joseph from the town of Arimathea. Now, they didn't have last names back then. You would know them by their father or by where they were from, okay? Uh, Jesus talks to uh, Peter, and he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. What does that mean? Simon, son of Jonah, okay? Joseph of Arimathea, he's known by the town he's from. Judas Iscariot, that's not his last name, right? Iscariot probably means man of Kerioth, and Kerioth is a town. You see, that's the way it worked back then. Joseph of Arimathea was part of the council. He might not, and in fact, in all likelihood, was not a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. But he believed that Jesus was a good man, and he wanted him to have a decent burial. So he was wealthy. He had his own new tomb, and it was near where Jesus was crucified. Since Jesus was crucified on the day before the Sabbath, or it depends on, there are different views as to uh, whether Jesus was crucified on uh, the day of preparation for uh, the, um, the, the pay, it's the Passover certainly, but the 14th, Nisan 14 was the day of preparation, right? And that meant that the Passover lambs were slain on that day. And then that evening um, or that night, they would eat the Passover, and for the next seven days, they would observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay? So the day of preparation was a day of preparation for this Feast of Unleavened Bread and for eating the Passover. But they also use the same term 
for the day of preparation. They called it the, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, because they weren't allowed to do any work on that day. Okay. So without getting into a lot of details, um, there are different ideas about this. But either way, the next day was a Sabbath. It was either the first day of, well, it would have been uh, the first day um, coming up. The 15th would have come after the 14th of the day of, uh, of unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the day after that would have been the Sabbath or the Sabbath and the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread were overlapping. Either way, they didn't want to leave people up on the cross because the next day was a holy day. It was either the normal Sabbath with the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then the day after that would have been the Sabbath. Either way, they didn't want to leave men on the cross, okay? So Jesus was taken down very quickly and they didn't have time. This is why the women on the first day of the week come with spices, so that they can finish the burial. They can, they can finish their version of embalming, okay, to honor the body because they didn't have time. There was just no time. Uh, Jesus died at three o'clock. So um, I believe he died on the day of preparation, the Nisan 14. I believe he died as John's gospel indicates that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, died as the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple. It's powerful, very powerful, okay? Well, that means that they had between 3 p.m. and sundown, which that time of year, they didn't have daylight savings, would have been probably 6, 6.30. So they didn't have a lot of time. They needed to get him somewhere, and they needed to honor him. And they're, you know, we'll wait until this Sabbath or these Sabbaths have, have passed, and then we'll go in and, uh, and we will finish uh, the uh, embalming process. So Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was convenient in that it was near Golgotha. Everybody knew where it was, okay? It was a new tomb. So when Jesus was buried there, um, nobody would have confused his remains with some other remains that were, and, and I know that sounds weird, but family tombs contained the remains of multiple family members, right? And if they're wrapped up tightly, mummified essentially, then it could be easy for somebody to say, well, no, he's still there. But see, everybody in Jerusalem knew that Jesus was buried in that tomb and they all knew what else? That it was empty. They knew he died. They knew he was put in that tomb and they knew that tomb was empty. So now why is the tomb empty? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, it says that the Jews paid the Roman soldiers to tell the lie that his disciples came and stole his body. And that was perpetuated. That lie was, was passed along. Okay, that was one of the things that they told to try to convince people that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. But notice, they did not say he wasn't buried. They did not say he was thrown out into uh, the, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom where all of the common criminals were thrown, okay? They didn't say that. This is in this confession, which comes two to five years after. So this is why it's important for it to say, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he actually died, and that he was buried. That's why that's in the confession. And then he rose on the third day. Well, that's the crux of it all, friends, right? And later, the Apostle Paul in this chapter says, 
if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then of all men, we are most to be pitied. He said, we're pathetic. What I, you know, apostle, the apostle Paul knew what he was going through, the indignities he was going through and the suffering that he was going through. And so, you know, he said, you can't doubt the bodily resurrection of Jesus, because if you doubt that, you doubt everything. It's central. It's essential. Okay. The reason Jesus chose the 12 was because they would become the first witnesses. Witnesses to what? To the resurrection. And we just saw that, right? Jesus first appeared to who? Cephas. He first appeared to Peter. Do you remember who denied him? It was Peter. And who did he first appear to? He first appeared to Peter. Isn't that awesome? Okay. Um, so, you know, and, and we can look at the, uh, you look at the scriptures and see that, you know, he appeared uh, in the upper room, okay, where they were cloistered. So that's what it says here. He appeared to the 12. Um, and then apparently, you know, he showed himself to more than 500 at the, at the same time. We don't have that listed anywhere in Acts or in the Gospels, but, you know, it's obviously it was something that was well known. Then it says he appeared to James. James was his brother, half-brother, okay? And James was the first pastor of the Jerusalem church. So that was an important appearance. It was an important connection that happened there. Well, these people are all witnesses and they're all spreading the gospel. What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? He said, um, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, who's he talking to there? He's talking to these apostles. He's talking to these that he's sending out. That's what an apostle is, someone that's sent. Okay. That's who he's speaking to. And you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Starting in Jerusalem, he doesn't say starting, but it's in Jerusalem. In Judea, that's the surrounding area. In Samaria, those were the people, if you were in Pastor Craig's Bible study last week, he talked about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans were not well-liked. They were at odds with the Jewish people. Their territory was in between. It was stuck right in between two Jewish territories. Here's Galilee, here's Samaria, here's Judea. Samaria, right here, right? The Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans to such a degree that when Galileans would go to, here's Jerusalem, right down here, Judea, Jerusalem, um, they were all supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year to these three major feasts. When the Galileans would go down to Jerusalem, guess what they would do? When they got to the edge of Samaria, they would cross the Jordan River, go around it, and cross the Jordan River again. Why? Because the Samaritans had cooties, apparently, right? Um, the, uh, this this uh, TV series that has come out. It's an independent series called The Chosen, I think does a good job of showing this animosity um, that it wasn't just one way, it was two ways. The Samaritans didn't like the Jewish people either. And you know how that works, right? You know, we don't like you, you don't like us, and we don't like you because you don't like us. Well, we don't like you because you don't like us. And so it's the, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys, they just keep feuding. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, Jesus embraced the Samaritans. He embraced uh, everyone. Samaria was the people that were unlike them. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now you're going to be witnesses to these people that are unlike you and to the remotest part of the earth. And of course, the Apostle Paul was the primary person that was used by God to spread the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. I mean, he literally walked all over, you know, what is today uh 
Asia Minor and you know, took a boat across and went over into what is today Greece and then ended up in a, in a ship and went all the way to Rome. And he spread the gospel everywhere. Uh, Brother Donnie was talking earlier about Billy Graham and we were talking about how he just preached the gospel everywhere he went. That's what the Apostle Paul did. That's all he did. He just preached the gospel everywhere he, did, he went. What's the gospel? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We fall short of God's glory. We need a savior. What we earn for our sin is death. Eternal death, that's hell. That's what we earn for our sin. But God sent Jesus to die in our place to pay the price for our sin. And he rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life. If we choose to be in him, put our faith in him, okay? His life becomes our life. That's the gospel. It's not all these other things. It's not all these other ideas, these other doctrines. It's not to say doctrine is unimportant, but we have all of these other things that we make so important and so central, and they're, they're not. If you focus on Jesus, you focus on the reality that we need a Savior, every single one of us, there's nobody that's getting into heaven without a Savior. If we, we focus on that reality, we understand that, okay, and we come to Jesus, and we allow him to come into our life, we put our faith in him, well, then we're saved. That's, the God, that's what we need to share with everybody. It really is. Um, it's what I shared last Sunday. It's what I'm going to share again this Sunday. Um, but I think we've drifted away from that. It's worn smooth on, on our, in our thinking. We're just like, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, everybody knows that. Everybody believes that. But that's not true. Right? We need to stick to that. We need to stick with that. And I would, uh, you know, really encourage you to memorize this brief little passage of Scripture. Uh, the Apostle Paul says um, that what he received, he passed along to them. So these are kind of, they're very official uh, terms, right? And it was the terminology of passing along something that, is held traditionally, some sort of teaching, all right? So think of something you learned as a kid, right? Something you learned, something you learned about your family or something you learned about history, right? Something you learned about our country or if you're from another country, from that country, okay? And then it's something that you were told was important and so you memorized it. And then you passed it along. You passed it along to friends. You passed it along to your children. Is there, is there some teaching that you learned when you were a kid that you passed along to your children? Maybe it was how they should act, right? Maybe you were taught. So when I was a kid, um, my mom taught us to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. I don't hear kids saying that today. Now, why is that? Well, obviously, somewhere that got broke. But I'll say that to younger people. I have, a, you, know, uh, you know, a woman talk to me or whatever, and I'll say, yes, ma'am. I'm honoring you. Okay? I'm not saying you're old, so I'm going to call you ma'am. Okay? I say that. Yes, sir. Now, I do hear kids say, yes, sir, sometimes. Um, maybe. Seems to be almost uh, a way to... Um, butter somebody up, okay? Make them think you're respecting them even if you don't. But the point is, 
It's just one of those things. Did you teach your kids to say please? Did you teach your kids to say thank you? Why did you teach them that? I bet you were taught that, right? Okay. I try to, uh, you know, we've, we've gone through this in church a couple of times. I've uh, tried to teach our kids to say that dinner prayer. God is great. God is good. Now we thank him for our food. Amen. What's wrong with that? Um, how about the Ten Commandments? Did you learn the Ten Commandments? Did you pass those along to your kids? How about the Lord's Prayer? Did you learn the Lord's Prayer? Did you pass it along to your kids? See, these are important things, but we don't think they're important anymore. And so now we've got kids that know more about celebrities and the lyrics to songs than they do the Word of God. So probably we need to learn to pass along these important traditions. Well, the most important tradition is the gospel. So in order to believe something, you've got, you got to ha have been exposed to it, right? You've got to know it first before you believe it. So th there's a whole lot of assumption and presumption, I think, um, in Christian families, and there always has been. But when it comes right down to it, the question I ask again is, do you know what the gospel is? Can you pass it along? Do you believe it? See, it's interesting to me. Americans are so independent, or at least they like to be perceived that way, that they don't want to say something that someone else has said, or at least if everybody else knows that someone else has said it. Unless, of course, that someone else is really famous and everybody really likes them, okay? So, you know, if I say something to you and, you know, I think it's important and I have you repeat it, right? I'm not trying to patronize you or anything like that. I want to get you to get it in here, right? But hopefully in all this process of teaching and getting you to write notes and, and, and this sort of thing, you're learning this. You're getting it in here and it gets down here, right? What does it mean? When you say you know something by heart, what does that mean? It means you got it memorized, right? You got it down. So I've been teaching karate for a long time. And for the last decade or more, it's been pretty much children that I've been teaching. And um, you try to get them to do exactly what you do. See, that's the thing. Japanese karate doesn't take anything for granted right? When you start off, there's, there's no improvisation. There's no innovation. You don't do it your way. You do it the way. There's only one way to do it. And once you learn how to do that, then you learn to spar and you put those things together and then you start improvising. But what I find with kids when I first get them in class is that they just, you know, that, that doesn't click for them. They're just kind of trying to approximate what you're doing. And I know they're not doing, they're not being rebellious typically. They just think, well, I am doing that, you know? So one of the things that we do, all right, is your feet are straight, just like this. My toe lines up with my heel. My feet are just outside my shoulders. I bend my front knee, okay? This is our standard stance. Virtually every kid is going to do this or this. They think, you know, they're just putting one foot back here and one foot here, and they think this is the same. Is this the same? It's not the same. This is not the same. So I say, well, you know, turn your foot straight, and they just, 
at first they don't understand. Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not bad-mouthing kids. I'm just showing that there, it's in us, this sort of innate, I guess, kind of uh, independence. I've got to be free. I've got to be me. Maybe there's some rebellion in there, too, that doesn't want to copy what someone else. But it's ironic because what I see a lot of with kids is they do copy each other, okay? So right now, I'm looking around, and I'd say at least half of the people that I see wearing face masks out here are kids. Why? They're the least likely to be impacted by this, and face masks don't work. But they all do it. They do it at school. They're just not... I. Today, I just want to tell teenagers, you're not a real teenager. We were rebellious. I don't know what you are. <laughs> you're little clones. Well, I got to wear my face mask because all the other kids are wearing their face masks. And we all wear our face masks because we're being good. I don't know what they're thinking, right? <laughs> Except, you know, it's. I think it's the same thing as kids when they wear hoods. All right? You know, they, like, they got to wear their hood. You know, they like they like being hidden. Somehow, I think that's part of it, okay? So, but my point is they'll do things that other kids do. They just don't want to do what adults tell them to do, right? Well, we're all kind of like that, right? But the truth is the truth regardless of who tells you, okay? If the devil tells you the truth, it didn't change because the devil said it. Now, he'll try to twist it, and he's got a wrong motive, but the truth is the truth because it's the truth because Ultimately, if it's really true, it's aligned with the reality. And if it's the truth, it came from God, and God doesn't change, so the truth doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. So when I say you should memorize this, you really should. <laughs> it would be good for you, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. I promise it would be really, really good for you. Or at least 3 and 4, okay? For what I received, I pass on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That's the other thing, by the way. The Bible predicted this according to the scriptures. It wasn't just Jesus died on the cross. Well, that's weird. Okay. But he died on the cross according to the scriptures. Read Psalm 22. Read Isaiah 53. Both of those. Psalm 22 says Psalm of David might have been written as much as three, uh, excuse me, as much as a thousand years before Jesus. 1,000 years. Can you think of 1,000 years ago, how long ago that was? Was the United States in existence 1,000 years ago? Was the United States even discovered by Europeans 1,000 years ago? No. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. So that wasn't 1,000 years ago. Okay? You follow what I'm saying? 1,000 years is a long time. Davidic Psalms, Psalm 22. Okay? When you read Psalm 22, and you're going to recognize it because Jesus spoke the first verse of Psalm 22 while he was on the cross. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first verse in Psalm 22. Read Psalm 22. It's like David was observing what was happening at the cross and writing it down. And there was no cross back then. There were no Romans. Okay. Um, and then Isaiah 53, right? This is, again, um, you understand who the suffering servant is, and that's Jesus. And you understand that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. 
the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. That's Psalm 53. That's Jesus. That was written between five and 800 years before Jesus, either by Isaiah or one of his disciples later. Okay? These are, these are prophetic words about the crucifixion. Jesus died on the cross in accordance with the scriptures. Excuse me. And then he rose from the dead, once again, in accordance with the scriptures. So there are multiple scriptural texts, and I'm going to see if I can find this in my notes, um, that relate to the resurrection. There's Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Oh, also Zechariah, by the way. Let's go back up to the scriptures testifying of the, um, the crucifixion. Listen to this from, uh, from Zechariah, excuse me. And Zechariah would have been about uh, 400 or so years before Christ. I, I will pour out on the house of David, and Jesus was the son of David, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn, okay? Um, so that he was buried. Hang on, let me get to my, I haven't been following my notes, so I got to get back to my notes here. Okay, here we go. Here are Old Testament scriptures related to the resurrection. Uh, this is quoted again and again, by the way, in the New Testament. This is Psalm 16, 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol was the Hebrew uh, realm of the dead, the grave, Right? You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This is referring to the Messiah, that he would not be in the tomb long enough to decay, right? Uh, now remember, we say Jesus rose uh, on the third day. Was Jesus dead for 72 hours? No, no. He might have been dead for 24 hours. He died at three o'clock on Friday, okay? They put him in the tomb, well, more than 24 hours, okay? They put him in the tomb, so let's go to three o'clock Saturday, he's in the tomb there, okay? That's 24 hours. Let's go to 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, that would be 36 hours, right? We don't know where, somewhere on Sunday morning early he rose. So let's say it's 6 a.m. We don't know. Just say, for sake of argument. It says 39 hours. So his, no, his body did not undergo decay, okay? Um, then what does Job say? Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God, whom I, on my part, shall behold for myself and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. So there is talking about some sort of resurrection, it seems. And then I really like this from Isaiah 25, which is a very prophetic passage. And on this mountain, he will destroy the covering, which is over all the peoples. What is the covering, which is over all the peoples? Death, that is correct. The veil, which is stretched over, the, over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Amen. That's good news. That's Isaiah. 
That's 800 years before Jesus. And it's already speaking of a resurrection and uh, obviously alluding to the one who will bring life, okay? And then Isaiah 53, I mentioned to you, also alludes to resurrection. But the Lord, that is the Father, right, Yahweh, desired to crush him, causing him grief, right? Yahweh the Father desired to crush him, the Son, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So it would seem, if he's going to see his offspring, he's going to live again. Then this from Hosea 6.2, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Uh, and this I alluded to earlier or quoted a bit from. This is Hosea 13.14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Death, where are your thorns? Sheol, where is your sting? And this actually gets... Uh, reversed and made positive in the New Testament because uh, it is a condemnation if we read it in context. And then lastly, Psalm 73, 23, and 24. Nevertheless, the psalmist writes, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. You will guide me uh, with your plan and afterward receive me to glory. So all of these testify of the resurrection according to the scriptures. So what I received, I passed along to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to all of these folks. And you can keep memorizing if you want, or you can just say, and then Jesus appeared to Peter and to all the apostles, he appeared to more than 500 people at once. He appeared to James, his half-brother, and he appeared to the apostle Paul, last of all, after the ascension. You need to know this. And you need to know it well enough that you can speak it and pass it. Listen, the Word of God is powerful. We're so, you know, we, we want to innovate. We want to say things our own way and do things our own way. Man, I'm telling you, it's just like Japanese karate. You need to memorize this first, right? Get it down. Get it down exactly. Pick a translation and use that translation. One of the things that has been really destructive to my memorization over the last 20 or 25 years is the proliferation of translations. Now, I'm glad there's a lot of translations. I've told you guys that. The problem is, in the process of using all these different translations, I don't have one set translation that I'm memorizing it anymore. So I'm bouncing all over the place, right? So I've landed on the ESV for you know years now because it's very literal. Um, and that's the translation that I will typically teach out of on Wednesday because that's literal and it's verse by verse. But on Sunday morning, you'll notice when I read long passages, what do I read out of? New Living Translation. Flows better, easier for people to kind of understand. But I just got the coolest, most beautiful New American Standard Bible, the 2020 edition. And I'm going to use it Sunday morning and I'm so excited about it. And it's a it's a beautiful preaching Bible. I just, I love it. But I really do believe I want to start gravitating toward uh, New American Standard, the updated version. New American Standard was the first Bible that I ever bought and started using. We used it in the church that I got saved in, North Phoenix Baptist Church. They used, the New American Standard Bible has had three different editions. Uh, the first edition that I bought 
was, um, it's 1970 something was the publishing date for that. And then they updated it in 95. So I've often switched between ESV and NASB in here. And I'm speaking from the 1995 update. But now there's a 2020 update. And it's a full thorough update. Um, it's really interesting. I like it a lot. So I think a lot of the scripture that I originally memorized, I memorized from New American Standard Bible. And I think I'm going to really go back to that. But I would encourage you, pick a translation, read all of the others to try to understand, but pick one that you stick with. And if you're questioning whether it's a, a, you know, a good translation or not, then just come and talk to me. okay? And then memorize out of that. But do memorize. This is the Word of God. It will rewire your thinking. Your mind needs to be renewed, and your mind is renewed by God's word. And by the way, if you want faith, do you know how you get faith? Seeing miracles? No. If I do what I have planned currently, we're going to follow the holy history until the, the people of Israel, the children of Israel get to the promised land. And you'll find that God did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And these people continually doubted him. Miracles don't make you believe. They let you see. And seeing is not believing. Seeing is seeing, right? Seeing tempts you to say, well, God, what have you done for me lately? What's the next miracle you're going to do? Do a trick for me, Jesus. That's kind of the miracle-seeking mentality. No. You know how faith comes? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes when the word of God is preached. So remember all this talk over the last several weeks about prophecy versus tongues and prophecy, preaching the word of God. That's what changes hearts. That's right. The Holy Spirit accompanies God's word and he changes hearts. See, that's the seed. Remember the beginning of this talk? That's the seed. The seed is God's word. The seed is not my ideas, my opinions, my stories. The seed is the word of God. And so hopefully you've received a good bit of that tonight. Amen? Amen. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. God bless you.